Good evening, and welcome to the History Show on RTE Radio 1. What mistakes would you say the British made in those initial years? Shooting the leaders of the 1916 rebellion. If they hadn't shot them, the whole business would have been over in a month. Tonight, we're going to look at memories of the Irish Revolution and how different media are useful in preserving memory of the War of Independence and the Civil War. Recently, an extraordinary collection of interviews has come to light, a treasure trove of oral history recorded by a young academic in 1972. There were some fellows who couldn't give information or who wouldn't give information and they were duly shot. Well, we shot about 80 or so of them and we brought the thing to a complete termination. These interviews with prominent Irish revolutionaries were featured in the RTE television series The Silent Civil War, broadcast earlier this year. I'm joined on the line by Harlan J. Strauss, the man who made those recordings as a young PhD student back in 1972. But when you were organising, or what sort of people were you interested in organising? It would be mostly small farmers and there wasn't a great deal of distinction between them. Also here with me is Jim Dolan. His father, James Dolan, was active in the War of Independence and uh, Civil War and was one of the people that Harland interviewed in 1972. Did you ever have any doubts about what you were doing? Never. Never. I was a dedicated young Irish volunteer. I have no regrets for what I did and I do the same again mm-hmm. tomorrow. Right. I'm also joined by historians Connor Mulva and Ulton Courtney. Ireland, tell us first of all, how did these extraordinary tapes come about? Well, I was at the University of Oregon Political Science Department putting together in the early 70s uh, my PhD dissertation. And I was working under a professor, a very well-known academic by the name of James C. Davies. And I had a idea of making a comparative study of revolutionaries not just revolutions, but revolutionaries, people from the English, Russian, American revolutions. But it it, it became clear to me after a while that I needed to go in and talk to people, find out exactly why they did what they did, not just what they did. What, What they did, I can find out going into any library, but why they didn't, that's not in the literature. So I started making an inventory of possible places I could go to for uh, some worthwhile interviews with uh, living revolutionaries. Not that many were available. I could I could have gone to Cuba, but that was a little little dangerous, <laughs> and Fidel's people were not very cooperative. But then I realized because. The papers and the newspapers in the 70s were were just full of the troubles, what was going on. But there was something, something much earlier, 50 years earlier, and that was the War of Independence. And I, I soon started writing some letters to academics and journalists in Ireland uh, just on the nature of what I was proposing. And they wrote back, all of them wrote back to me saying, hey, my lad, come to Ireland, come to Dublin, meet with me. Some of my best friends are rebels and revolutionaries. I'll introduce you. So that's what it, uh, how it happened. I got some funding from uh, the American National Science Foundation uh, for a dissertation grant in the social sciences and then from the Russell Sage Foundation in New York. And it all began there. So you arrive in Ireland with a brown travel bag, a box of tapes, a Philips cassette recorder, and also, interestingly, outsider status. You're not Irish. You don't have any Irish connection. You don't have any agenda. Did that help you, do you think, in any way? Or did it make the slightest difference? Yeah, that that was my real uh, bonus to the whole, whole project. Quite often they would ask if I was at all Irish, and I would say zero percent. And, and, and they opened up. They opened up a, a, a lot. Uh, I found that I was really the, the first person in so many cases where I got an honest discussion of not just what they did, but why they did it. And, and for example, I know we're going to talk later about Michael Hilliard. Hilliard, in the middle of the interview, said, you know, I, I've never done an interview like this, and I don't know why I'm doing it with you. 
Uh, have you ever written any political literature? I haven't. I haven't did any of that. I'm very reticent about my old business. I haven't given an interview like that to anybody. And I don't know why I'm giving it to you. <laughs> this is great. Interestingly, of course, he had done an interview like that, but he wouldn't have thought of it as a similar interview because he was doing an interview with you, which was very much on the record and could be used in any circumstances. But he had also done an interview with the Bureau of Military History, and that's something we will come to and we will thrash out later. Uh, And we'll get into some of the people that you spoke to in a moment because it's an absolutely astonishing list. But I'm going to bring in Jim Dolan at this Mm -hmm. stage because to some extent the fact that these tapes are not still in America that they are not in an attic and that we know anything about them is pretty much down to you Jim tell us about yes. your own father's revolutionary uh, career first of all okay uh, my father was born in 1903 in what is now uh, known as Mackin Street Clarence Street in those days of a Reasonable sized family, five, six kids, and he started working in Boland's Bakery in 1916. And Got a bit busy during Easter week. He certainly did. In fact, he brought bread down to a certain gentleman who became the president of Ireland, Eamon Devon Lera, at five in the morning. And uh, he was in the royal, I think it was the, the director's carriage or something, sitting where Grand Canal Station is now. And uh, the lads were having a bit of a row with him and he trying to tell him to calm down. And he was a 13-year-old witnessing Eamon Devler having a, a mental breakdown. A bit of a meltdown, yeah. yeah. He yeah. was a bit worried about all the, the artillery going off around him, you know. It didn't put him off, though, because he became a revolutionary himself. Indeed he did, yes, yes. And in fact, uh, my father and himself unveiled a cross in Herbert Park for their unit, which is uh, the 3rd Battalion, uh, right outside the American Embassy. I have a wonderful photograph of him and Dev, and Dev is very elderly at this stage. And we, in the family, says we never thought we'd see that day, you know. <laughs> and what 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 kind of things did he get up to during the War of Independence? We'll talk about the Civil War yes. in a few minutes, but uh, in the War of Independence, for example. Okay, just to put it in perspective, he was he, he was eighteen in twenty one. Uh, he had an older brother by two years, Johnny Dolan, and Johnny was in the ASU, and he had his leg blown off in a in a attacking what is the a Priest Street guard station now, but it was the... Brunswick Street Yeah, then. correct, yeah. And uh, he got injured and they, between the fire brigade and the and the tram, the, the tram people, they got an ambulance and they brought him to Mercer's Hospital. The legend was St. John Gogarty was involved in, in the operation and he was spirited away and hidden from the Brits for the rest of the War of Independence. So Dad kind of came late into it and he, he would have had a small role. He was involved in a few skirmishes and things like that. He mm. doesn't, you know. Um, and then in the Civil War, I think, yes. the brothers, this was literally, in the case of your family, the War of the Brothers. There was a bit of a split, yes. Yeah. To be quite honest with you, in the case of Johnny, I think he became a conscientious objector. Uh, he had lost his leg, etc. And in fact, if you look up his pension application, he he's, applies for years and there's kind of a an ambiguity towards him, but you know he was he, he does get it. Who, who took what side? My father t- obviously took the Free State side. He he went straight into the the very start of the army. So Johnny would not have been entitled to a pension in 1924, for example, under the no. you know, the, the first uh, correct uh, the first act. Yeah. Yes, he yeah. And I've looked up his, and you can see the the litany of trying to to get it. Eventually, he does get it. You know, in the 1930s, presumably. And, but ironically, it was on the Free State side that made him a state lieutenant. That's the the irony of it. You know, they actually made him a lieutenant. Well, he was in the Free State Army at some stage because mm. there's. A, I actually have a, a picture that I, I, I'll show you later, where he's sitting in, a, in an armoured in a car uh, with other Free State soldiers. So he must have signed up. You know. And tell me then about the discovering the existence of these of these tapes, because Harlan does an interview with with yes. your dad, and that's how you yes. get into this whole. Thing. Correct. Tell me about that. In fairness to Harlan, he sent every person that he interviewed a transcription of the interview. And in my father's case, he got that. My dad passed away in 1980. And again, going through his papers, etc., I stumbled over this thing and it was fascinating to read. Like, I remember dad in the house referring to an academic coming to the house. Didn't know the man's name at the time, but it I do remember the scenario. He says, a man has come from America, he's interviewed me and he's interviewing a whole lot of other people over the next so many 
things. So I was aware, I wasn't really aware of Harlem's name. But in the transcript, there's Harlem's name. And at that stage, then I'm sort of, we got the very early days of the Google end of things and looking up things. And I punched in his name and it comes straight up in the position he's in. And he was, I think, I'm right, Harlem, you were in the, the, the Pentagon at the time, correct? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And and I, I quickly found some contact detail for Harlem and I, I wrote to him and I said, you did an interview. And he says, not only your father, he said several others. And I said, who else did you? And you then sent me a list. I, I want to find out how mm. that then develops into Harlan's involvement in the, the wonderful series that we saw back in, in April and May on, on RTE television. But I'm curious, how much did your father talk about his experiences during the War of Independence and the Civil War to you and your siblings? Oh, he's, he, he opened up quite a bit. Right. Uh, yeah, with us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that and would be exceptional, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was like slightly different. Uh, and the, Yes. And again, my father, who uh, he, he retired. I'm born in 54. He, he retired in 61. I was a barrack brat as a kid. And then we moved up to where we lived most of our lives in Churchtown. Uh, he bought his first house at 58 years of age when he retired. You know, we'd lived in barracks all our lives. And he, I suppose he retired at 58. He tried to sell Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, wasn't too good at it. But he got involved in, he realised there was a lot of veterans out there. There's a lot of men still alive. They were scraping around for different things. And then he, he thought, maybe we could form an association. So he was heavily involved in the, the sort of the welfare of the veterans, the 1916-21 club. He started drawing together the different units, etc. And he went sort of lobbying for for different things, one of which was, could the War of Independence veterans get free travel? And he knocked on the door of Charlie Hoy, and Charlie Hoy was pushing an open door, mm. got it, you know? Because that was one thing he could give both, all sides was yeah. going to get that one. You see, we weren't politicians then. We had got the freedom as far as we were concerned, and the next thing was to complete, and that was for politicians. That was our answer. Mm. But we were loyal to whatever government did, and the government did change, our opponents got in. But that didn't matter to us. They were the government then, and that was it. It gave them the same loyal service. Harlan, what what do you what what's your recollection of of interviewing James Dolan? Well, he was a, a good, outstanding man who had lots of good stories, uh, and was very anxious to get his stories known and on the record. If I might add one more little kernel to Jim's story, in, in that first Google email to me, he says, I want to I want to hear my father's voice one more time. Could you send me the recording, please? And that really struck me. And I, I really realized what it what it meant 50 years later to uh, so many of the relatives of these 32 people that I interviewed. Jim, it must have meant a lot to you. Oh, it did, of course. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it is exactly like Harlan said there. It, it, it evoked great memories then of his personality. And I could hear his personality back in the in the tape. Explain the process then whereby this association, this email exchange between mm-hmm. you and, and Harlan ends up in us having access to this a fantastic treasure trove of material. With that kind of little moment of getting that back and, and, and Harlan tells me there's others, you know, and, and he obviously sent me the list. He, he had the who's who. There was some mm. serious players that oh, been yeah. interviewed. I, I knew straight off. And, and I said, a lot of those individuals have gone on to have amazing political careers and controversial careers, you know, in the, in the, the mix afterwards. And have you no, know. all now gone to their reward, whatever yes. that was. Yes, exactly. I suppose between us, we said, there's more to this. Let's make these available, you know, to other academics that want to know what's because you're, you're probably going to fill in quite a few gaps in there. And certainly you'll, you'll enrich the, the personality of some of these people and what they were trying to do, you know. So how does that become the TV project? OK, well, moving much further on then, I was it just happens. We, we grew up in Churchtown on a street called Landscape Park and a guy that was the same age as me. He was doing a, a gig inside in town and I went to the gig. This is so many years ago, not not in the recent past, though. Mm. And uh, I'm talking to his wife and whatever came up, 
their daughter was interested in, in the sort of history side of things for documentaries and making films and that. So I said, oh, well, my father is, it was involved in the War, of, the War of Independence. Oh, really? She's quite interested in that period. And I said, well, there's a, an academic that was over here in the 70s and I know I, I personally got the copy of the interview and I know he has a lot more. And of course, they got very excited. And then I said, well, here's his contacts. Let's get back to him and see what we can do. And those tapes, thankfully, Conor Mulva, have found their way into the Civil War Memory Project. Talk to me a little bit about that project, because, you know, obviously in the case of, of Jim's dad, he was open. There was talk. There was conversation. But anecdotally, that was not the case elsewhere. So one of the things that you are doing is you are bringing this to the next generation and perhaps the generation beyond that. So explain the Civil War Memory Project in that context to me, if you would. Absolutely, Miles. Well, I suppose to, to maybe talk about this element of it with the tapes, that's very much the intergenerational leap that, that Jim was mm. responsible for, that when Catherine O'Mahony became aware of these, herself and her friend Anya O'Neill flew to Berlin and they met with Harlan and that's where they actually started making contact with him about the recordings. He had them all digitised, I believe, at that point. The transcripts were all changed from paper PDFs into digitised PDFs. And then when, when Catherine was working on the Civil War Memory Project, she had been trying for, for several years to try and make some kind of a project that would bring in what they were calling the Harlan tapes and how to bring it in. So the Civil War Memory Project's overall objective was to try and find what we dubbed the memory keepers. So this was the people who had heard stories about specifically the Civil War, but generally the Irish Revolutionary Generation. And to look at them as a source in and of themselves, because this is not so much about the ranking history of V.S. Eigenlich Gewesenwar, how, how it was in reality, but more about how people actually transfer memory. And if you think about, I, I think the Irish word for generation is fantastic. It's gluing, which is a knee. So a generation <laughs> is one knee to the next knee to the next knee. And this is all about how people of Jim's age and, and anyone of that kind of middle generation heard about the revolution and now us of a younger generation again are sitting down and asking not the people who are all dead and gone and this is why Harlan's tapes are so incredible because he was there at the centre point. He's 50 years from the Irish Revolution and now we're 50 years hence and in 1972 he was wandering around Dublin and the rest of the country with his tape recorder sitting down and sometimes asking these Columbo level questions to people sometimes being very naive sometimes being right on the money and asking people these incredible questions and I think the level to which people opened up to Harlan was just incredible because some of these people and we've we've gone through we've been making a, a kind of a mini series about this as a podcast recently and kind of talking through the tapes and talking through Harlan's memories of it but one of the things we were very cognizant of is that people had spoken to RTE they had spoken to various things before they had bureau statements but Harlan was coming to them as this young American guy sitting down with the tape recorder and he sometimes he'd ask them can you go back to the, the basics on that you know tell me you know, where did you go? Was that a village or a town? Were your parents political? Were you Catholic or Protestant? And getting it from the source right the way through. And like you said, coming to it with no agenda. This wasn't, you know, the, the Bureau statement. It wasn't um, Ernie O'Malley, for instance, going around. This was a completely neutral observer. And as a result, Harlan's tapes give this phenomenal insight. And he doesn't just get one side. He gets absolutely everyone. And when it comes to the, the gluing, the, mm, the, the knee... Yeah. Have you sat many of the second generation and third generation down with those tapes, listen to that? How does that square with anything that your father, mother, grandfather, grandmother told you or didn't tell you 50 years ago, 70 years ago? So that's very much the intention of the Civil War Memory Project, not just with these tapes, but the wider thing of sitting down with the people who knew the people of the revolution and asking them, what was this like? Jim is... Not quite the first, but almost one of the first people I've met who is one of the, the relatives of the people in the tapes. So that process, I suppose, of we've deposited the tapes and I was there with uh, Catherine and Anya on the day that Harlan deposited the tapes. He flew to Ireland with the same brown bag he'd flown to Ireland in 1972 yeah. <laughs> and the zip was still working on it. Uh, and he started taking out these tapes and, and my I, I'd seen the list in fairness, but my jaw was still hitting the floor just looking at yeah. the names coming out on the tapes. 
of each individual tape and you know even just the ones that, that kind of we might be talking about today like Moira Comerford Michael Hearlead Martin Walton Sean McEntee yeah. John A. Costello yeah. Sean McBride Sean Mc it is jaw- Robert Barton Robert it, Barton yeah. it is yeah. jaw dropping yeah and a, an incredible one he, go, he goes up to Belfast I assume or I don't know where he went for this one Harlan you can jump in but he sits down with Basil Brooke and asks Basil Brooke about the Irish Revolution and Brooke comes and says well I wasn't in politics at the time but I was in the B specials and I was you know and then his wife jumps in and says oh yes darling but don't forget to tell him about this that and the other and like, he, like when I say Harlan went and talked to everyone he pretty much went and talked to absolutely everyone they're really incredible Were the B specials difficult to organise and then first to run? No they weren't, at least I didn't find them so. Then all I had to do in order to get going in a hurry was to pick up certain loyalists in each part of the world and said, go on, now you've started enlisting men, quick, and put out your patrols. Mm-hmm. And very often they did the whole thing in three days. Right. I don't say they were very efficient, but they did the job. Then why, why they got this awful name that nobody knows except propaganda? Yeah, let's talk, Harlan, about some of the people that you interviewed. And Ernest Blythe, tell me about meeting Ernest Blythe, for example. Oh, he was a very proper, proper guy. I knocked on his door and I entered into his beautiful little house and he uh, told me his story. I had looked him up in several biographical dictionaries, and so I knew where he was coming from, basically. But uh, I found that there was perhaps some holes in his story. (laughs) And as I did a little research, further research after the tapes, and I should have gone back. I should have gone back to ask him about his time uh, in the 30s uh, uh, with the uh, blue shirts and what his role was, et cetera, et cetera, but I didn't. (laughs) Mm. What do you think about the role of the common man in government? Do you think he should duly participate? Oh, he should insofar as he can, but I don't uh, just say that he can participate directly. He can only participate by the use of his influence and by throwing his weight on one side or another uh, as different issues arise. It's only the man who is governing, either the minister or the high civil servant who can participate directly in government. But uh, it he, he turns out, the more that I think about his story, a very complicated person. Oh, very much so. Did you find yourself judging people like Blythe, for example? I think there are a few people around the table, including myself, who would be quite judgmental about Ernest Blythe. Yes, indeed. Did you find yourself judging him? Not at that time. But uh, 50 years after, as I read the tapes and I learn more about him, uh, yes, I do become more judgmental. And also his his time in the Abbey, his decades there, he's had a tremendous impact on, on the direction of Irish culture and what is mainstream culture and what isn't. So, uh, yes, I'm judgmental. <laughs> uh, so was Maura Comerford judgmental because you went, I think, to talk to her either the following day or certainly very shortly afterwards and you happened to drop yes. into the conversation. By the way, I, I had a chat with Ernest Blythe the other day. Uh, she wasn't too happy oh, with that. She she blew up. <laughs> <laughs> no, because she says Blythe is directly responsible for me spending all that time in prison. What, what about being jailed during the period? I was in jail in 22. For, for how long? In 22, January to about May. I escaped in May. Uh-huh. And then I got caught again, and uh, I got out on a hunger strike. What, what were you in there for? Oh, nothing. You weren't tried for anything. I see. It was sort of internment. Internment, yes. Yeah. Mr. Blythe. Oh, no wonder you don't like him. <laughs> Connor, when you hear something like that, when you hear the voice of somebody who has spoken in possibly consecutive days to Ernest Blythe and to, to, to Maura Comerford, what, as an historian, I mean, obviously you begin to salivate, I'm sure. Yeah, it's, it's the interlinkage between the interviews. And I think one of the things that I want to draw out more with Harlan is that daisy chain effect, because 
this was initially done, as, as Harlan said, with the correspondence. But by the time he got to Dublin, people were saying, well, while you're here, you need to talk to so-and-so. Mm. And the network of people that Harlan contacted, I'm fascinated to see who recommended who in the same way that <laughs> some of these individuals were having the same conversations in, I guess, the 1930s with Ernie O'Malley. Some of them were doing the same thing in terms of being each other's referees for the military service pensions. So that daisy chain effect, and I, I suppose in history, I'm generally interested in kind of social networks and the analysis of those social networks. And in some ways, that's also what Harlem was trying to get at here. And, you know, the questions he was asking people about, you know, were brothers and sisters involved? And people were saying, you know, were whole villages where there was, you know, particularly widows, actually, one of the tapes I was listening to earlier today, he said there was two widows in the village and both of them had five sons and all five of the sons in each family were involved. So that network analysis that's built out from these tapes is absolutely fascinating. And coming back to the Maura Comerford interview, the other thing, and Jim alluded to this earlier, that we don't maybe expect is that these are inadvertently or not sometimes hilarious tapes because there are people in the 1970s reflecting back on this. Sometimes it gets very serious and they're talking about the Northern Irish Troubles or they're talking about, you get Ernest Blythe's view on atomic warfare, which is not what you'd expect it would go in the tape. But in other times, you know, it's like Moral Comerford kind of sneering and saying, well, don't mind what Mr. Blythe said to you. You know, he, he, he just locked me up with no good reason. And, and Harlan asks her, what were you in prison for? And she says, well, no, nothing. I was interned. I was just, I found myself locked up in the North Dublin Union one day. So they're quite wry in some cases. And Harlan, there are some surprising subjects as well. Um, Connor's already mentioned Basil Brook or, or Lord Brookborough, uh, not somebody that you necessarily would associate yes. with the Irish Revolution, but somebody else that I certainly wouldn't associate, but you did talk to him, was James Dillon. But there you're talking to somebody who is the son of one of Charles Stuart Parnell's well, he was up to a point, loyal lieutenants, John Dillon. I mean, wh- what's your recollection of that? Why did you want to talk to James Dillon? Just because of what you, you said. He, he, his family was long involved for generations in uh, the development of, of modern Ireland uh, in the way things went or, or, or didn't go. I, I remember knocking on his door. Out comes this slightly rotund figure he starts talking to me, and I'm just blown away. Uh, it's this, it sounded to me like I was talking to Winston Churchill. Uh, <laughs> He'd have loved that. He had an incredible way of talking and an incredible accent. And we were we were sparring for a while uh, verbally. Uh, he, he was trying to control the conversation. I was trying to control it. And it was a very interesting give and take. But that's one of my favorite, favorite of the interviews. A protracted period of the black and tan war against the British, which a great deal of blood was shed on both sides and horrible things done, followed by an inevitable compromise, which would certainly end in a civil war between those who wouldn't compromise and those who were prepared to do so, followed by the acceptance of a settlement with Great Britain involving the detestable principle of the permanent partition of Ireland, followed by the horrors through which we are passing at the present time. Mm -hmm. What mistakes would you say the British made in those initial years? Shooting the leaders of the 1916 debate, if they hadn't shot them, the whole business will be over in a month. For the most part, people were obliging. They were happy to speak to you. As Connor has said, they were putting you in contact with other people. There were a couple, however, who were not that pleased. You did talk to them, I think, but they refused to be tape recorded. I'm particularly interested. Well, I'm very interested yes. in Pather O'Donnell, but let's maybe talk about Frank Aiken, first of all. Yeah, Um I really wish I could have tape recorded him. We all do. Uh, yes, yes. He was a very crusty man. I could tell immediately that he had quite a story uh, in his past, and he had a lot of areas that he didn't want to talk about. So in, in retrospect, I can understand why he didn't want to be tape recorded, why he was afraid of me where I was going in the interview. But... Um, Unfortunately, it was a short interview and it really wasn't that worthwhile. There was nothing from what I could tell uh, that he said that wasn't widely known uh, in other publications. 
Tell me then about Peller O'Donnell, because O'Donnell was a writer. O'Donnell wrote an awful lot yes. about this about this period. So, uh, what kind of a conversation did you have I, with him? I was surprised. It was very good. He, he's a very. You could tell he's a very uh, part of the in, intelligentsia of the period. Uh, a wonderful person, but. Uh, he was, I think, afraid of that new technology and where it could lead, the tape recorder. <laughs> I wonder what he would have been like on social media. Um, now, I want to get on yes. to Michael Hilliard, right? Because uh, I find this particularly fascinating because I got access to the recording of your interview with Michael Hilliard and listened with fascination. And Michael Hilliard was, he was a, a Meath man, he was a Meath IRA, he was anti-treaty, but also he was involved in an incident in 1920 where he personally executes somebody he believes to be a spy. And the interview that you do throws up interesting issues vis-a-vis the Bureau of Military History witnessed statements because he opened up to you, no doubt about that, but he did not talk to you and he certainly did not volunteer any information about this particular episode, whereas he does talk to the Bureau of Military History witness statement interviewers. Alton Courtney is here, historian of, amongst other things, the War of Independence in County Meath. You are, you know a lot about the career of Michael Hilliard. Tell us a little bit about Mick Hilliard. Yeah, well, Mick Hilliard was the fair-haired, blue-eyed boy of the revolution. There's no doubt about that. He was very, very young when he joined the IRA at the age of 16, three months, and very quickly became adjutant and captain of the Navin Company. And uh, his fellow uh, revolutionaries seemed to think because of the, bit, the extra bit of education he had gotten Greek and Latin in St. Finian's College in Mullingar made him a candidate for a, a captaincy. But also he was more of the middle class and his family had a bit of money because they were cattle dealers as such. But uh, he very quickly came to prominence in the actual unit and uh, he was also a good leader. They seemed to follow what he was doing. At such a young age, you would wonder why they would do that. But he seemed to be able to command the respect. If you listen to the interview that Harlan did, it does remind me of my own father, who was County Mead, and knew Mick Hillard well, because Mick Hillard sheltered out in Kamena Mud, uh, where my father lived during the Civil War, and they got to know each other. In fact, we're still exchanging correspondence up to 1979 or thereabouts. So he was in command. There was clearly no doubt about that in the Navin Company at such a, at a young age. Got heavily involved in intelligence and, and subsequently became the brigade intelligence officer for the 2nd Mead Brigade, but also got involved in the, the incidents that were mentioned to Harlan. And I, I don't know whether Harlan knew about these particular incidents, but they're quite important in, in, in the context of County Mead. The murder of Thomas Hodgett, the local postmaster and loyalist, who some research has been done on. I'm fairly certain that the RIC committed that particular murder. And he mentions it and passes on. And he actually makes the admission, the same admission that he made in the in the War of Independence Bureau of History statement, where he says that he thinks that Thomas Hodgett may have been shot because of the leak of messages in the offices. Now, there's other theories why he was shot uh, in relation to... The, the IRA were getting a lot of information from the post office in Navan. From Paddy Hughes, but mm. not, from, not from the... Uh, not from Hodgett. Not from Hodgett, but the, the, they suspected he must have something to do with it or was part of a personal vendetta against him by Michael Cunin, whose daughter was working in the post office, Bridget Cunin. And so it went on. But around that time, I think it's crucial, there was a lot of activity, intelligence activity. Bradley, the post office spy, was also shot in early January 1921. There was the concerns about Navin. And then this man, Michael O'Brien, turned up in the Navin area in around that particular time. We have the relevant extract from uh, Michael Hilliard's statement to the Bureau of Military History about that particular incident. But just tell us a little bit, give us a bit of a, a little bit of background to it, if you would. Yeah, Michael O'Brien, A.K. Michael O'Brien, had arrived in Navan uh, just after the death, about 10 days after the death of, of Thomas Hodges. Now, he may have been there earlier. The IRA suspected that Hunts of Bruce Hill, Samuel and Elizabeth Hunt, were actually agents of the, the British Crown. They had a hotel. He may have been staying there, but no evidence of that, simply the fact that Hunts may have been a, a agents of the Crown. Uh, he arrived, he was around the town, he was talking to different people, bizarrely was asking people to, to put him in contact with members, senior members of the IRA, including Boyle and Paddy Mooney from Trim and other people. It was quite a strange episode, um, if he was an agent, uh, that he was getting into the IRA population or trying to get into IRA contact. Because it, was, it wasn't it was something that you expect an agent to do. But then when you think about it, how would an agent actually 
infiltrate themselves into a place you just turn up and try. But um, the IRA got him and cornered him and talked to him and Michael was brought down, Michael Hitler was brought down to question. Now, as you said, Hitler very quickly formed a view that this man was a spy. He said he was Michael O'Brien from Tipperary. Silver Mines and Silver Tipperary, Mines, yeah. But he, had a, he seemed to have a Scottish accent. And there's a suspicion uh, that he was actually an agent under the control of Sir Basil Thompson. He's one of the ethnic Irish spies that had been sent to Ireland. And he had used some spies of Irish origin from Glasgow. And there was one in Balbriggan, a man called William Jack Straw, who, who was executed by the IRA as well. And he was blamed on, on leading the RSC in the towns around the burning of Balbriggan. An alternative theory from uh, Portagogo Rourke, the uh, historian, is that he may have been a bounty hunter. There were a number of three or four bounty hunters who were attempting to claim uh, well, £10,000 reward for uh, someone of Michael Collins. Right. Suggestion was that he wanted to make contact with Sean Boylan because Boylan was close to Michael Collins, etc., etc. Um, okay, here is a little bit of the account, the account of the execution of this quote-unquote Michael O'Brien. That's the name that, that he gave. And this is an account from Michael Hilliard's the unredacted version, the redacted version is online, but the unredacted version is available in the Bureau of Military History itself. And his, this is Michael Hilliard's Bureau of Military History witness statement read here by an actor. On the last day of February in 1921, a stranger arrived in the town. He went into one of the local public houses where he inquired as to how and where he could contact the local IRA. The stranger had introduced himself as Michael O'Brien of Silvermines, Tipperary. I introduced myself to Michael O'Brien, telling him I was from the Flying Column. He inquired for Sean Boylan, Paddy Mooney and other prominent IRA men wanted by the RIC at the time. I said, I'll take you to them. I questioned him extensively as to his identity, his history, nationality and religion, but he refused to give me any information regarding himself. I explained that I would have to shoot him as a spy, and if he would tell me his religion, I would get a clergyman before he died. But again, he refused to say what religion, if any, he belonged to. I had his hands tied behind his back with my own handkerchief. He said, I did not think it was in you to do this. I made a big mistake in dealing with you. If you're ever in a similar position, I will show you how to die. Go ahead and do your duty. As he finished, I fired one shot. He dropped dead and fell on his back. I turned him over and took my handkerchief off his wrists and then gave him another bullet in the head. We left the scene, leaving him where he lay. The stranger spoke with a Scottish accent. He was not a Tipperary man. Alton, what did you make then of his interview, of Michael Hilliard's interview with Harlan, where he does not mention any of this and where he also says there was no hangover from for him from any of this period he has just basically put a bullet at the age of 18 he's put a bullet through somebody's head yeah he he executed him he shot him in the breast so he's looking him straight on and then shot him in the mouth when he was lying on the ground to make sure he was dead and the bullet exited at the back so that was something that very few people could do Uh, Michael Hillard seemed to be able to do it they say one or two percent of people are actually involved can actually do this he carried out the execution and he didn't seem to have any issues about it afterwards. I'm not overly surprised at that because when you listen to, to the interview, Harland has, has given us great insight into why he did things. He was quite clear in relation to his nationalist upbringing, the fact that he, they had a religious upbringing as well. He believed in morality. He believed in the circumstances. He probably had given the man the best chance he, he had. He couldn't give him a, a full trial, given what was happening in Navan at the time and decided that he was a spy. There's something in the, in the statement where he kind of said, if I was in the same situation as you, I'd probably do the same thing. Half kind of admission or probably an admission that he was actually a spy at the end. And that's something you do find quite regularly. People in those situations actually say, OK, you, you, you've got me, so that's it. I'm big shoot and away you go. And they did that. And he's much clearer in relation to a statement that he had actually executed the guy because he believes he was a spy. He believed he was a spy. Mm. And therefore, I think that was important because morality, I think, is hugely important in these things. It often isn't, doesn't come up in these discussions. They were religious people. They did believe in morality. Having a just war and having the sanction of their priests or pastors was very, very important to them. 
So I think that in good conscience, which is something the term we don't hear very often nowadays, in good conscience he had killed a man, in good conscience he could then live with himself. And I think that comes very clear across in the interview. I'm so grateful to Harlan for doing that interview because it, it, there is no doubt in my mind that he had any compunction from a moral point of view. Here, by the way, is what in the interview with Harlan, here is what Mick Hilliard had to say about executions, uh, specifically in the in the interview. We dealt with individuals in a different way. If we had to take a man for execution, he was tried before a court and, uh, and uh, uh, the charges were put against him. Did you ever have any doubts about what you were doing? Or I had no doubts time? ever in my mind of what I was doing. and I, I was engaged in every class of an activity, and put it crudely to you, from pitching to us to man I never had any doubt in my mind what I was doing, I was correct. Yeah. Never. You think I, I have no a... doubt in my mind now. I have no hangover. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I, no, I don't suffer from nerves. <laughs> Harlan, what memories... I mean, you, you obviously interviewed dozens of, of people, so I suppose 50 years on they can all be merged into one or two or three or whatever, become a bit of a blur. How did Hilliard impress you? Because I, for one, find it difficult to imagine that somebody who did what he was called upon to do or decided to do at the age of 18, that it would not have haunted him for the rest of his days. But he he certainly, I mean, as Ulster was saying there, he certainly sounded in his conversation with you as somebody who was completely at peace with himself. Yes. A tough man. Uh, His opinions were formed early in life. You know, I asked him the question, are you a leader? And he comes out with the statement, I'm just one of those people who came out. I, I didn't know that I had the qualities in me to stand through rifle fire and it having no effect. Then he goes on to say, it's nothing to boast about. It's inherent in man's nature. It's a gift that everyone doesn't get. The same with a hunger strike, and he goes into the hunger strike stuff. Yeah, during the Civil uh, War. Well, tell us about tell us about that because he he does talk, and this is one of the differences between Bureau of Military History witness statements, which are not supposed to include references to the Civil War, but frequently do. And your interviews, and this is why you know this is why Connor's project would find them far more. Your interviews, in many cases, more valuable than the than the witness statements because he takes the anti-treaty side in the Civil War, and he ends up on, on hunger strike. And he talks about it to you. Well, it's, first of all, I, I believe that this is the first time that he's really told anybody what his true feelings were at the time about hunger strikes. And it's just, to me, totally amazing. And I was agog with, uh, with his statement. He was sort of in a trance as he was telling me about this. And what a hunger strike means, what it does to you physically, what it does to you mentally. The dreams that he got uh, and the dreams that he had and and still has from that period. And then he later on says, I don't know why I'm telling you all this stuff. I've never told it to anyone. (laughs) My mind changes, gets crystal clear. It's what, pardon? Crystal clear. Oh. Your mind gets crystal clear. Mm-hmm. You uh, live a sort of in an ecstasy after about 21 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have daydreams and night dreams. Most beautiful dreams. You, your mind becomes, the, the, the subconscious mind, I think, begins to operate. I'm not certain. I, I can't explain it. Yeah. But uh, you can, uh, you, you can, you recall as if on a, as if you were looking at a film. Uh, what happened to you from the very early days of your life, from your childhood, very earlier on than you can remember. I mean, Connor, the the interview is absolutely fascinating. Uh, There's no doubt about that. But he does withhold this 
what must have been a, a huge moment in his in his young life. He doesn't talk about the execution of this alleged spy. What does that tell us about the Bureau of Military History witness statements? The fact that he does talk about it to the whoever was interviewing him for the Bureau of Military History. To me, and again, we can only infer some of these things, it speaks to the fact that he was speaking to a, a military officer in the Bureau statements and that he was speaking to someone who had similar understandings of those experiences themselves. And in the past, we've had two reference points because most of the people who are in the Bureau also applied for a pension. So by that kind of Boolean logic, you have two different snapshots of them, one usually in the 1930s and one in the late 1940s, early 1950s, and they're doing it with different reasons. In the pension application, I'm not going to say they're trying to prove the bail book, but they are to a certain extent trying to show what sacrifices, material, physical and otherwise, they made in the cause of the Irish Revolution. In the Bureau, they're sitting down with a military officer and they're talking through with one that would have understood, to a certain extent, similar experiences, what actually they did and they're trying to put it down on the record. And now we have this third time point for these 32 or thereabout tapes that that Harlan did and the other people who he spoke to who who didn't let him turn on the tape recorder. And this is a a young guy from a different generation, from a different country, coming and asking them about their experiences. And I think Harlan's role as, as a civilian and as one who wasn't, I'm not going to say touched, but rather tainted by war and revolution. And there's so many interviewees that sit down with Harlan. And I'm conscious that in the background of this, the troubles are literally going on. Like the, 1972 was the worst year of the Northern Irish Troubles in terms of death toll. And Harlan sitting down in, in the March of that year going through Ireland and talking to these individuals. The other thing that's happening simultaneously is the Vietnam War. And this is a young American student who's asking these people about war and revolution. And so many of them are so deeply anti-war when they talk to him and say, don't ever get involved in a war. It's horrible. There's nothing glorious about it. There's only blood and gore and guts and don't go near it. And that intergenerational moment for me is mm. absolutely fascinating. But there is a fascinating thesis to be done by somebody who gets hold of Person A's military service suspension connection application, their Bureau of Military History witness statements and their interview with Harlan Strauss and looks at and traces memory through those three different media, if you like. Exactly. And this is history, but it's also folklore. What we're actually studying here is the process of how people deposit, maintain, keep and then pass on memory. And to me, that's what what's at the heart of the Civil War Memory Project and what's at the heart of this project 50 years on from Harlan's tapes, bridging those generations. Alton, though, uh, I suppose a word of warning about the Bureau of Military History witness statements yeah. because there can be a lot of, uh, I'll, I'll abbreviate it, BS in yes. there. Yes, and I think they should be read in that context. <laughs> and it's one of the things in the memory projects where you have problems with a lot from the Republican side. We don't have very much from the Crown Forces and services and that kind of stuff. So we get the odd bit now and again. There's one interesting point that to pick up from Harlan's interview with um, Mick Hillard. When I was listening to it, now my ears are getting old, so I could be wrong. But I thought there was a reference when he, when he mentioned the pitch and toss. I said, I don't want to be crude about what I did in the revolution. He said, I did everything from pitch and toss to what I thought was manslaughter. I had no doubts ever in my mind of what I was doing and I, I was engaged in every class of an activity and put it crudely to you from pitching toss to man So I don't know what it says in the, in the transcript and maybe the sound engineers can hear it better than I can and may be able to isolate it but I think he made some reference like that but then he swiftly moved on he did, certainly did not Yes it's true it's true that was there Okay so he did not go on to do what he did in the Bureau statements to make a big explanation of what happened with O'Brien but you did well Carlin to get him to, to actually to say that because it, it put on the record outside the Bureau of Military which is a confirmation and we're always looking for confirmation of events. Yeah. Harlan do you recall because Connor and I I think we're particularly struck by this that there's an extra dimension of history to the interview with Michael Hilliard because in the background I think it took place it seems to be taking place in Dáil Éireann in the bar in Dáil Éireann and in the background, Conor Cruz O'Brien is taking a telephone call or is making a telephone call. Do you, do you oh, remember really? that? <laughs> no, I don't. I, I really don't, unfortunately. 
If you listen to the tape, if you listen to the tape, you will actually hear his name being called over the intercom and him coming to the phone. And as you are winding up your conversation with Mick Hilliard, Conor Cruz O'Brien is basically winding up his telephone conversation. And you can actually quite clearly hear bits of his telephone conversation. So thank you very much for that. Because that's that's amazing. That's an added. added Well, that's a surprise to me. (laughs) Laying in an ambush for. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, for uh, small military forces and uh, other activities of that character. An added dimension of history. Connor, <laughs> just uh, before we go, before we finish with this, because it also speaks to the subject of, of memory of this period. Tell us about the, the podcast, what you're doing and what you're hoping to do with that. So yeah, myself and Harlan have been sitting down over the past few months and just going through these tapes one by one. We've, we've just recorded our fifth episode uh, last week uh, on Ernest Blythe. So we've done Sean McGowan, Christopher Brady, who is the printer of the proclamation, the James Dillon tape, the Moira Comerford tape and then the Blythe tape. So the Comerford and Blythe ping off each other very nicely. <laughs> so yeah, we're just exploring this in the first instance I think it's really important that Harlan deposits his own memories of these tapes as well because it's such an important layer of it. So we're trying to make this as something that will help general members of the public, researchers, everyone else get an insight into the tapes. And what we're doing is comparing the historical record to what's said in the tapes. But what I what I do want to say is that the bigger thing here is that the full set of tapes have been deposited in the UCD National Folklore Collection, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Status Folklore Collection. It's part of the Memory of World Treasures. So any research can go in there and listen to the tapes in the National Folklore Collection in UCD. We're also doing an active project around collecting the Civil War Memory Project. So if you've seen the documentary earlier in the year, we're still actively collecting. So if, if you do have memories of your own relatives and I suppose your experience is that and you want to deposit them in the National Folklore Collection, make contact with the National Folklore Collection, not with me directly, but with, with the Folklore Collection. And yeah, I suppose ultimately what we're trying to do is move towards getting the digitised versions of these tapes a little bit cleaned up for the audio so it's it's a little bit cleaner for some of them. Um, Don't clean up Connor Cruz O'Brien. Oh no, we, we won't be cutting out background noise. It's more just to try and get it in. And, and I must say, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's a sound engineer out there somewhere who, who wants to, uh, I suppose, write a sonic history of the 1970s and it's all sitting there in these tapes. There's everything from the background of Bewley's to the doll bar to nursing homes to people in, in the, the hot summer of 1970, the hot, hot spring, I suppose, of 1972 with their windows open and you can hear motorbikes going past, dogs going by. There's a fascinating other side to it. So we don't want to scrub any of that away. Absolutely. But ultimately, our aspiration is um, hopefully with UCD National Folklore Collection to put the tapes up raw for everyone to listen to. How can you access the podcast? Uh, we, we haven't we haven't necessarily put it out just yet, but so we're still recording it. We're kind of in talks with, with a few people as to where it's going to go. But uh, I suppose watch this space on the podcast. Me and Harlan are still in our recording phase of it, but that should be finished up fairly soon. But the National Folklore Collection in UCD is where to go for the tapes if you want to go and make a visit and listen to themselves uh, or indeed deposit your own memories. Well, my thanks to all my guests uh, this evening, Harlan Strauss, Jim Dolan, Connor Mulva and Alton Courtney for talking us through some of those Civil War memories. I had inherent in me the qualities of uh, being able to stand through rifle fire and it have no effect. Mm-hmm. I could uh, uh, take me place in a in any class of a situation of that character and still be able to move around and not uh, show any sign of fear. Uh, it's not uh, it's, 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 it's nothing to boast about. I think it's, uh, it's, it's inherent in a man's nature, in the individual's nature, uh, in my view. And uh, it, it, it's a gift that everybody doesn't get. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Harry Buckless was on sound tonight and our researcher is Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.